but I think in a central case of you know, de-escalation and the economy you know, staying robust, but growth rates actually flattening out, inflation peaking, I don't think that they're going to do you know, five rate hikes or six rate hikes this year. That seems, or you know, multiple 50 basis point rate hikes, as some people are saying. I'd, I'd be very surprised. Hello and welcome to the Parkview Podcast. I'm Paul Hank, investment analyst at Parkview, and joining me is Usama Himani, CIO at the firm. In this week's episode, we take two differing outlooks for inflation and put them to the test. Our guest this week, Oliver Adler, recently retired as chief economist for Switzerland at Credit Suisse. Prior to this, he spent close to 20 years in various positions at UBS, including five years as head of portfolio strategy. Thank you, Oliver, for taking the time to talk to us. It's always a great pleasure to hear your thoughts. Uh, I will say to our listeners that, you know, our friendship is not only longstanding, but in fact, you were my boss for a few years at some point in, in, in the early noughties. And so it's been a very longstanding relationship. And I always appreciate hearing what you have to say. I guess maybe... Uh, given what's going on in the markets, inflation is on everyone's on the top of mind of everyone. But maybe before we start talking about inflation itself, maybe we can you can share with with us some thoughts. What do you think inflation means to you? Because it strikes me that it means different things to different people. Well, anyway, first of all, Osama, thanks for having me. And secondly, I hope while I was a your boss, you didn't suffer too much, but you seem to have survived pretty well. So. so of course, given that I'm, you know, given that I spent most of my life in Switzerland, where inflation was almost always barely existent, it's kind of I don't really have a lot of inflationary experience in me. Uh, but I do, of course, uh, you know, given that I am a bit older than you, I do have a clear memory of the uh, of the seventies, right? Of the uh, of the of the of the period of uh, high inflation, even in Switzerland, I don't remember how high it actually was, um, and that of course was you know the period of these very big big oil shocks, seventy three, seventy four, then again seventy nine. Um, so you know, sort of my picture of those days, those were of course supply shocks. I just recently, you know, reminded. Uh, Tani, my wife, that uh, in those days, uh, you know, there were uh, many weeks, uh, I don't know whether it would weeks or months when actually you couldn't get any gas, right? You couldn't get gasoline. <laughs> uh, so it was sort of the, the inflation, this inflationary period of mine, which I sort of have in my mind uh, strongly is, of course, this, uh, this period of su- supply shock driven, huge price increases, uh, especially for gasoline and oil but of course then a general increase in in prices um uh, so i think that the the interesting thing about it at least it's sort of my experience i haven't been in a world where you know price levels change every day continuously i have a good friend in argentina who told me this story look um in in the high inflation period in argentina when he went to buy a, a coffee he sat down in the cafe and uh on the you know on the menu uh, you know it was I don't know twenty pesos for the co- cup of coffee um, and he wanted to pay and the lady said no no that that's the price of this morning the price of this afternoon is thirty pesos right 
So that's of course quite a different, <laughs> quite a different sense of, of, of dramatic inflation. So, so in that sense, um, I would say in, in my mind, really high inflation is this one period of the 70s where it arrived even in Switzerland. Uh, uh, but otherwise, um, and then of course in the UK where I spent some time during again a high inflation period in the again in the second half of the 70s, you know, catchword minor strike, uh, again supply shock driven uh, in uh, inflation. But after that, inflation to me is actually an emerging markets phenomenon and not an advanced economy phenomenon because I actually since then have never really had the sense of. Uh, you know, inflation being uh, being uh, being a problem. So, uh, you know, in that sense, what's happening now is new, right? I mean, it's been a long time since we've had inflation rates of five, six, seven percent in in advanced economies. So that's interesting. What you're basically saying, um, you're defining inflation as as when prices rise at at a certain pace. But you're also noting that there are supply shocks. And, and when I think of supply shocks, I think of prices of certain goods rising a lot more than others. And as a consequence, we have measures of inflation showing big numbers. But if I step back and think of economic theory, I, I really look at these and think, well, is this really inflation or is this relative price shifts? In essence, I, when I think of inflation, I think of inflation as being a continuous rise in, in prices in the general price level. And i.e. the continuity here is what really matters rather than the one-off fact of gasoline prices shooting up or the price of used cars shooting up as we saw last year is what we're seeing today inflation. I think the, the problem is that we don't really know, right? Uh, because even uh, in, you know, even in that episode of the 70s when prices shot up, um, yeah, I would say after some time, you realize this wasn't just oil, this was other things, right? And, and of course, there was a huge discussion about wage price spiral. And then there was all the theory that came with it, with Friedman, et cetera. That's, that was, of course, the high, the high point of monetarism. Uh, Etc. So I mean that 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 added this whole sense uh, for economists about what it was all about and what was driving it. But I think actually, um, I, I certainly think uh, it is. You know, although one speaks of of relative price changes, it's very hard in reality to say, oh, this is just a relative price change and not much else, because of course, if you had a dramatic relative price change, which wouldn't be inflation, you'd actually have one set of prices going up and the others falling a lot, and then the price level wouldn't change, right? But in reality, those types of episodes, I think, barely exist because we don't really have um, typically, you know, prices of things falling very fast. Uh, is, is though That's a very rare phenomenon, right? We have, of course, trend, we have have experienced over many decades prices of many goods tending to fall, at least when you adjust for quality, right? I mean, a car today doesn't cost more than what a car cost uh, 30 years ago, but of course, it's, it's, it's a much better car, right? So basically, prices have fallen. But I think, yes, I, I think inflation, as you said, 
true inflation is a prolonged process. It's not a one-time thing. It's a prolonged process. And it is something which actually is also a psychological, fa uh, psychological event. It's not just something which, you know, you, you read numbers and say, oh, this is inflation. But I think it's actually, it's actually psychology. There's a whole psychology of inflation. Uh, and, and I think we haven't really, uh, after the 70s, ever experienced that. And I also wouldn't really think that, at least for the moment, I have any sense that in the Western world, although we have these dramatic numbers at the moment, I do not see, at least yet, any sense that we are in this kind of uh, mindset of continuous, uh, uh, continuous price rises, where you don't really know, you know, how long will it take? Will it ever stop? I think at the moment, at least at the moment, I do not see that sense really, or that sort of psychological uh, environment, if you will. Um, but of course, you can't exclude that it'll arrive, right? But it's certainly at the moment, it doesn't look like it. So taking that into account, what do you believe has caused the current higher price levels? So well, I think, I mean, the first point to say, although I haven't, you know, been, haven't been in the forecasting business now for, for quite a while, but um, first point to say is that I think hardly anyone forecast what, you know, that these prices would, uh, that this would happen, right? That we'd get such strong... Uh, price increase, price level increases, but what did what what caused it? I think look looking back, I think it's relatively clear what caused it. It's on the one hand, um, uh, you know, the fact that we've had these huge supply constraints in all sorts of areas after the pandemic. And I mean, the pandemic started, and then basically world trade, uh, you know, more or less collapsed. Production in China, in particular. Um, went went down very sharply, and then of course, uh, essentially, all these supply chain problems started. But global trade was in a huge mess, and so in many many areas, uh, you had you know supply constraints which drove up prices, especially because demand then picked up. So you know you first had essentially supply constraints. Then you had, of course, early in the pandemic, a huge contraction of demand, and then actually prices fell. Uh, and then, of course, much faster than expected, demand increased again. And that was really a combination of, on the one hand, uh, private sector demand increasing because people actually had saved up so much money during the, or main, you know, a large segments of the population, at least in advanced economies, had been were able to save a lot, or they weren't able to spend during the pandemic. So they accumulated a lot of savings. So, as the, you know, as, as the uh, restraint on consumption relaxed, basically you had a big shift in in demand, in particular for goods and services, not so much uh, for goods, not so much for services. And then, of course, on top of that, you had you know, governments simply spending huge amounts of money, um, giving away everywhere. I mean, even countries where you normally have very conservative fiscal policy, like in Switzerland, we had essentially huge fiscal programs, right? Basically, wages were maintained for any, everyone, pretty much for everyone who, who wasn't able to work. Um, in the US, you had a huge fiscal program, but also in advanced, in other advanced economies, uh, so, you know, this combination of supply constraints, which are still not resolved, 
combined with a big increase in demand. In general demand for goods, services will probably follow. And then on top of that, again, these very specific supply constraints in very visible goods, like uh, again, you know, oil and gas. So I think it was sort of a combination of supply constraints, very big demand shift, especially fiscally driven, and certainly no efforts to constrain that through monetary policy. Monetary policy essentially completely accommodated all of that, or I would say probably over accommodated it, because of course, in the beginning, the initial reaction of monetary authorities to the pandemic was a big easing exercise. Monetary policy can act much faster than fiscal policy. So you first had this big monetary easing. It's all very easy to explain, but we didn't forecast it. You, you mentioned a couple of things. And, and of course, you're absolutely right that there were supply constraints and, and, and demand came back in a big way. But essentially, these are what we're talking about now in terms of what, what's manifesting itself and uh, uh, in, in, in consumer prices and producer prices are supply demand dynamics then. You could argue part of the 70s was also a supply demand dynamic too, right? Because there was a big oil shock that propelled inflation and the oil shock you know, higher prices led to led to wage pressures, which led to further higher prices, et cetera, et cetera. Yet, if we go back and, you know, examine the economic literature of the 70s, we find the conclusion that, that inflation, as Milton Friedman famously put it, is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. I don't hear people talking that much about monetary policy now, uh, in in exactly the same way. I hear most economists arguing that we are dealing with what is essentially relative price shifts and, and one-off factors, and they work their way out and, and, and inflation will come down. Am I, uh, am I wondering too much about this? I mean, how, how do you see it comparing to the 70s? Um, no, I mean, you know, there, there are, of course, uh, parallels but i would say you know that we'll, we'll still i mean obviously we don't know how things will work out but we we have to think about you know what was what what um was different i would say what what's been different let's say in the last until the until these prices started rising of course we've had of course very you know we've had expansionary monetary policy now for a long time um, whether you measure it through real interest rates or whether you mention it through monetary aggregates. Um, and of course, you know, before the pandemic started, um, you know, monetary policy uh, makers have essentially constantly complained that their problem is that they can't create enough inflation, right? I mean, you know, until very recently, all the central banks have desperately, you know, tried to achieve their so-called two percent inflation target, and they haven't. You know, they've they've kind of failed, um, and that, of course, is very different from the uh, from from the seventies. I mean, in the seventies, uh, there was not a notion of a inf of a inflation target, right? I mean, th that is a very very big difference, I would say, uh, because ever since. You know the big the big inflation. I mean, right? Of course, right as the big inflation of the seventies took off, monetary policy makers sort of were 
all over the place in what you know what to do against it right i mean they first you know influenced by milton Friedman, they created monetary aggregate targets that didn't really seem to work um and then you know eventually uh, then then they settled on uh, you know some some other types of rules but eventually i mean what they've done now in the last 20 30 years is really that they've settled on an inflation target which of course is a very loose target because uh, because of course you can't you know you can't achieve as opposed to having an interest rate target which you can achieve very precisely as a monetary as a monetary authority obviously an inflation target you can't achieve precisely in the short run uh, so it's always been, there's been a recognition by central banks that you know that they can't achieve this target in the short run but it has to be a medium term target but i think the big difference really to the 70s is that central banks um, have a very specific target namely creating inflation typically of around two percent and of course more generally what's what's very different from the central bank uh, from the from the 70s um is that you know central banks are politically independent at least on on paper and that of course was quite different uh in the 70s i mean basically um you know more or less uh, treasury secretary or whoever you know, more or less was able to tell the central bank what to do. Uh, and, and uh, you know, of course, the basically liberating, I mean, the Bank of England, I would say, was probably the prime example of a central bank, which was dominated by government. And then under, uh, you know, under, under Tony Blair was given independence. Of course, central banks, you know, the Bundesbank and the Swiss National Bank, they had independence much earlier. But sort of that the big central banks, the Fed, the Bank of England, um, actually, officially, were freed from political influence, at least overt political influence. I mean, that is the big difference. And the second difference, as I mentioned, is that they have a very specific target. So um, we will now, of course, see whether they will actually, you know, be serious about achieving that target. But if I hear what central banks are talking about at the moment i mean that seems to be totally uh, for the moment that do, do not that does not seem to be a doubt that the central banks will you know try to achieve this target which they've given to themselves now they may fail right but there's certainly no talk of them abandoning their target there is one little difference of course and that is whatever a year or two ago that the fed actually changed its target slightly right which makes the story a bit more complicated because they've actually moved to this average inflation target as opposed to a precise inflation target so that makes the situation a bit messier because in fact this average inflation target implies that they can run inflation above two percent for quite a long time they never expected that to be a problem, but now there is a, they have a problem because essentially they could argue in principle, well, don't worry because, you know, it's a bit above 2%. Well, it's much above 2%, but they could, they have a bit of a credibility problem with their new target. But I think neither the, neither the ECB, uh, nor the Bank of England, nor the Swiss National Bank, nor the Bank of Japan have this credibility target at the moment. Uh, and I think that, that is a very, very big difference to the to the 1970s. As I said, we will see whether they're actually going to try to achieve it and how quickly. 
but I think uh, there is no discussion amongst central banks uh, to relax the target. Are you concerned about these higher price levels or this longer term inflation going forward? Could you give us an idea of what your sort of base case is for um, the inflation outlook in the next couple of months or years? Um, I mean, you know, precise forecast is that I'm, I'm not in that business at the, at the moment, but um, I, my guess is that inflation will obviously run quite a bit above 2% for quite a long time. Um, I mean, if I look at the, what the market is forecasting at the moment, that actually seems to be fairly reasonable um, for the, I mean, the, the, you know, the 10 year break even inflation, I think the last time I looked is around 2.4%. Um, I actually think that might even be a little high, right? That we have an average inflation rate of 2.4% for 10 years. That's quite high, I would say. Uh, the short term, the five years, I think low is, is higher, which probably makes sense. Um, you know, so my best guess is that this year, definitely, I mean, it, it's very hard once you have these, this, you know, dynamic, um, uh, you know, it's, it's very hard to get that down. But of course, we, can, we have base effects, you know, kicking in fairly soon. I don't know exactly. I don't, I don't have that in my head, uh, but I think it's, it, it, it should, you know, happen. I guess in the second half of the year that we get, you know, significant, I mean, we've had significant base effects in the opposite direction of rising prices. Now I think we should just all, almost mechanically get uh, base effects going the opposite uh, way. Uh, you know, so, so my guess would be that inflation numbers will peak, um, you know, probably in the first half of the year in advanced economies and then begin to decline. And then how quickly they decline, uh, that's hard to, to tell. But I would say for markets, that certainly is probably the key that we actually see a peak, uh, peak in this dynamic uh, and, then, uh, and then a retrenchment, right? But overall, I do not think that central banks uh, will have to allow inflation significantly above 2% for a prolonged period. I don't really see why that would be necessary. It's more the question, actually, I think it's more the opposite question. You know, how, I mean, my worry in some sense is more that they, that they start panicking and, and tighten policy too quickly uh, because sort of, because of political pressures uh, uh, to, you know, to force inflation down uh, quickly. That I think won't work. And if they try it, it would be very, very negative for the economy and also for markets, right? One has to say, of course, that a scenario of two and a bit more inflation is, of course, a pleasant scenario for government overall, right? Because we have a lot of debt out there <laughs> and mild, gradual, you know, inflating away of debt is, of course, uh, you know, a very desirable thing for governments. Um, my guess is that if inflation went too high, then you know you could suddenly get a huge interest rate shock with with risk premium being built into interest rates, which which would be kind of worrying for the debt dynamic. But as long as they can credibly get inflation down to somewhere around their target, you know, then debt and and real interest rates don't rise uh, substantially. Then actually, that is of course, a, you know, in terms of government debt, is a, is kind of an optimal scenario, right? Because you have this gradual erosion without huge fiscal restraint, right?
it strikes me that central banks are in a very difficult position. As you rightly said, you know, the, well, at least the Fed has made their inflation target very fuzzy by saying average inflation, and we don't know the duration of this average. But then, but then we also know that, that it's very hard in this environment to really determine what is an interest rate that is too high or too low. The Fed itself has stopped publishing their sort of neutral level of interest rate at some point in 2020, just because of all of the different one-off factors. As you rightly said, also debt is much higher than it was before the crisis, and consequently, a rise in interest rate magnified effect on the real economy, right? Because of the the impact it would have. So, so it interest rate policy becomes more potent in a way, right? So if I'm listening to you now, it, it sounds to me like, would you agree or do you think I'm being, uh, or, or not agree with, with the view that, that the Fed will not need to raise interest rates too much? I Yes, I agree. I agree. I, I don't think I mean, obviously, you know, as I said, it's, uh, these things are very hard to predict. I would, I would think that um, if, if the world before the pandemic, if the equilibrium real interest rate in the world before the pandemic was, you know, zero or slightly higher. Um, but again, that's, you know, who knows whether that really was the case. But I think we've had, we had a long period of, you know, reasonably good economy without overheating, without without recession, without overheating, where real interest rates were, you know, basically around zero. Um, um, I don't see the, the 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 structure of the world economy or of the large economies having changed in any significant way, would which would suggest that the real interest that the equilibrium real interest rate has shifted since before the pandemic. Right. I mean, we haven't uh, had uh, you know major structural change in savings or investment. One would think, one would think that you know investment will be picking up, saving will normalize. We haven't had, I think, any major change in productivity growth. I mean, if anything, it's actually quite interesting. I just looked at pro- productivity growth numbers recently in the U.S. Actually, they were kind of rising gradually before the pandemic, which would maybe suggest that the real, real interest rate would also be you know, rising slightly. But I don't think it's very dramatically. So my assumption would be that the equilibrium real interest rate, uh, once all the mess with the supply, you know, supply constraints and uh, with this excess demand, once that kind of works itself through the system, I wouldn't really think that you know, real interest rates should be very different from where they were before, right? So, uh, in that sense, uh, you know, if taking the Fed funds rate to something like two percent, um, meaning or you know maybe marginally higher, uh, which then, if the target is more or less achieved of somewhat above two percent inflation, then we're back to you know sort of a neutral rate of zero. I think that, you know, more than that, I find a little hard to imagine now. And, in, and it could even be less. I mean, it could even be less. Uh, the, uh, the, the, 
in the end, I think it's it's very hard to predict, and I'm sure the Fed itself doesn't know it. Um, my sense is that the Fed is now talking quite hawkishly. A lot of members of the FOMC and other people around, you know, sort of uh, regional Fed governors are talking hawkishly uh, with the hope, actually, of, of, of sort of restraining inflation expectations. Uh, and then, you know, they will start hiking rates. Um, uh, but, you know, if we go, if we think about what happened in past efforts to raise interest rates post-financial crisis, it's taken fairly little, right, to basically um, essentially restrain the long-term interest rate, right? Because, of course, in the end, what they want to do is they want to restrain long-term inflation expectations in, in, in the bond market, right? That's essentially their target. And I think it's notable that, you know, we have not had a major rise in expected inflation in tips uh, actually since last summer. I mean, we had a big, big jump when the, when, when the economy seemed to be normalizing again. Since then, they've kind of been bouncing around. Um, real interest rates have started to go up uh, a bit, but of course, they're still, they're still uh, low, even if you, you know, they're still around zero or below. Uh, slightly, but my guess is, you know, that the that I that the Fed will probably not have to do that much, because by the time they raise interest rates, um, the you know the, the growth rates will have come down. Um, this overheating phenomenon in the labor market will probably have normalized to some extent, um, and inflation will have peaked. So I think there's it's going to be my guess is it's going to be quite a different environment for the Fed in the second half of this year than now, because now everyone is kind of panicked about these high inflation numbers, is panicked about wages rising quickly, is panicked about shortages in the labor market, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and my guess is that, you know, they, that in, in the second half of the year, you know, this, these fears will go away. Now, of course, there are a lot of things that could go wrong. I mean, one of them is, you know, what happens in oil and gas markets um, if, if the Ukraine crisis actually turns into a hot war as opposed to just a, a cold war, who knows? And there are a lot of things that could go wrong. But I would say, actually, in that scenario uh, of a really severe conflict in, you know, a, a, a military conflict in Europe, you know, which then in the short run might actually bring inflation numbers even higher because of oil and gas shortages getting worse. But I think in that scenario, actually, the Fed probably would do even less, right? Because we would probably see a big downturn in equity markets. We'd probably see a rally in the bond market. And the Fed would say, you know, well, you know, now there's so much political uncertainty that we actually do do even less. So I think this political situation that we're in now, actually, I mean, we hope, it won't actually turn into a hot war. Uh, and, and under de-escalation scenario, then the Fed may have to, you know, then it will proceed as it had planned to. In an escalation scenario, it would do even less. But I think in a central case of, you know, de-escalation and the economy, you know, staying robust, but growth rates actually flattening out, inflation peaking, I don't think that they're going to do, you know, five rate hikes or six rate hikes this year. That seems 
or you know multiple 50 basis point rate hikes as some people are saying that i'd be very surprised let me let me step back and maybe talk a bit since since we brought up since you just brought up the question of of the the energy markets again um you know i want to compare things again to the 70s and and maybe talk a bit about some long-term structural factors, and I'm keen to hear your thoughts. I think the first thing, you know, when I think of inflation in the 70s, one of the reasons inflation was durable was was because supply constraints lasted very long. And supply constraints lasted very long because you had a permanent shift in the relative price of oil that, that made a lot of technologies obsolete, right? Companies effectively, a lot of the capital stock became suddenly obsolete and, and companies had to invest, et cetera. And so you had these, these supply constraints that lasted for a long time. Today, you know, we don't have a permanent shock in energy prices, but maybe we do. Maybe, maybe the new regulatory environment in, in Europe, in the US, in particular, the drive towards renewables, right, has effectively, without changing prices of effectively making a lot of the capital stock obsolete and to make and 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 so to to meet new standards we we're actually supply constraint somehow that's that's one element another element i'm thinking of of longer term structural factors that that you know why did why did central banks succeed in in having inflation decline so dramatically from the 70s to, to basically a couple of years ago, this long period of disinflation, in part it was success and the change in you know, inflation targeting and independence and all of that. But, but I think you know, central bankers also like to take you know, credit uh, for things that, that happened elsewhere. And what happened elsewhere was globalization, which... which um, reduced prices, increased efficiencies all around the world. Uh, we had uh, the integration of economies like China and Russia into the global economy, putting downward pressures on, on wages globally. All of this stuff is going into reverse now, isn't it? I mean, the world is becoming less hospitable to trade. COVID, you know, putting aside the increase in, in, in protectionism, uh, COVID alone has basically made companies want to have redundancies. They want to have, as a supplier, China plus one other country. So, so increased costs are here to stay. And, and why aren't we, ha- you know, with so many structural shifts that are probably as seismic as the 70s, why aren't we at the at the beginning of a much longer era of high inflation? I mean, yeah, we can't we we can't exclude it. Um, I mean, you know, one could go one should probably go through all of the ones all the ones. There's there's an additional one, you know, which uh, uh, which is often mentioned, namely aging societies and the shortage of kind of structural shortage of labor in in advanced economies, right? Which is also often cited as as a potential driver of wage of wage inflation i mean on the on the first one you know greenflation as it's called right sort of the fact that the drive towards uh, uh, green uh, renewables will make um, which may will make carbon uh, 
driven technologies um, obsolete. My sense is that compared to the 70s, the shock is just much, you know, much less severe and uh, and 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 more gradual. I mean, I uh, if you actually look at the share of uh, uh, of oil and gas in the energy in the overall energy mix in the last I don't know couple decades, um, and also in the last few years, it's actually you know hasn't really changed very much. I mean, renew or, or putting it differently, I think the rise of renewables is a is a fairly slow uh, slow process. And I'm, of course, also not sure whether, uh, you know, all the talk about ESG will actually turn into action, right? I mean, I'm sort of somewhat skeptical there. Um, but of course, I mean, if you had uh, governments, you know, literally outlawing um, uh, the use of, uh, uh, you know, of oil and gas uh then and and you know a huge push towards uh you know less less in a sense less efficient uh renewables then that will be this kind of shock i just i'm just kind of somewhat skeptical that they will actually go you know go that go that far um i mean what is actually more worrying is sort of actually the opposite right that that the governments actually now that that, that oil and gas prices have have increased so much they're actually providing subsidies or they're you know they're lowering taxes on on on, on oil and gas to basically protect consumers uh which is kind of exactly the opposite of what, well they're now providing actually i mean this is of course crazy right they're they're providing subsidies both for oil and gas and for renewables right which is sort of seems like a very crazy combination but any in any case i think you know, my my sense is that this greenflation aspect is less certainly less severe than than it was in uh, in the nineteen seventies, where we had obviously after a period of uh, decades of sort of basically a monopoly, Western monopoly controlling oil prices, we suddenly had this breakup and then a huge shift, right? But you know, I wouldn't. So that would probably be the least one. The the globe, you know, the deglobalization. Um, yes, I mean. To some extent, yes. I mean, the fact that the EU Commission is now, you know, going to spend—I don't know—forty billion euros to uh, try and uh, make sure that uh, computer chips are not only produced in Taiwan uh, but also in Europe. Uh, you know, is you know that's somewhat worrying, right? Because you say, okay, that is protectionism, or maybe they have to do it because they're worried about uh, about um, the stability of supply chains. That is certainly, yeah, that is, is is certainly something which will shift prices. Again, I would tend to say it's probably more of a gradual process, not a huge shock, but it's certainly you could say it's a you know you're moving to a less efficient uh, economic model, and in that sense, these inefficiencies could show up in a worse, let's say, uh, inflation growth combination than we've had. Um, but again, I think we'll have to see how how far this deglobalization actually goes. I mean, to some extent, you know, the fact that China may be less important as the factory of the world may also be just simply because Chinese labor costs have gone up or going are going up, right? And so it's just not anymore the lowest cost producer. 
so maybe other areas, maybe some of the reshoring that we're seeing in, into in, into uh, into the old industrial world may also be because the comparative advantage of 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 China is not so great anymore. So it's actually not a politically driven deglobalization, but it is to some extent also market driven shift out back out of China into other countries. Uh, but of course, you know, it is it is certainly a, a an aspect uh, which could make the growth inflation uh, trade off uh, less uh, uh, less positive. And the last one on labor, there, uh, you know, there I am sort of a bit skeptical that labor, sh that structural labor shortages will really lead to a wage price spiral. And what I'm thinking, I mean, what, of course, what I have in mind is really Japan, right, where we've had a, uh, a long-term decline uh, in population, right? I mean, the, 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 you know, the, there are some, you know, economists are arguing that demographic change that we're witnessing now is going to be an inflationary force. In my mind, um, you know, aging is actually has tended to be more of a deflationary force and not an inflationary force, um, in part because actually aging societies. Um, don't like inflation that much. I mean, that's sort of more political economy argument, right? Basically, aging societies where a lot of people live on fixed in, on fixed on nominal fixed nominal incomes, they really don't like inflation, right? Because because that erodes their standard of living, and and so in that sense, I'm a bit skeptical that we're going to run into this situation where this shrinking labor force in advanced economies. Has so, it will generate so much power of labor that it actually will lead to a wage, you know, wage inflation, uh, a driven inflation. I'm I'm kind of a bit skeptical, um, and of course, one could also see, and that's going to be interesting to see in the U.S., where we had this dramatic decline in labor force participation in the last few months. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see whether that reverses, right? Whether older people actually come back into the market. Um, to me, it is very hard to imagine that, especially in the US, so many people will be able to afford to drop out of the labor market. I mean, I think the average savings of someone in the US who retires is, is one year's of income, right? Uh, social security payments in the U.S. are meager relative to most European countries. I find it very hard to imagine that so many Americans will simply be able to say, "Okay, I'm going to drop out of the labor market and live the next 20 years without, you know, without making any income." Um, and in Europe, I don't think it's that different either. So, in that sense, I find it hard to believe that labor shortage will be so severe that they will drive inflation. Taking all of your views into account, how would you advise investors to position their portfolios going forward? Like, just take us through your asset allocation thoughts for uh, the year ahead. Well, I think the first point is probably that return expectations should be low, right? <laughs> but in, in most asset classes, if we do not get a major inflation, persistent inflation, if we don't get massive interest rate hikes, and if we get political de-escalation, then you know my guess would be that equities you know will 
will recover and we'll probably have a year with you know marginally positive returns on the bond side obviously um there and we've had uh, if you take treasuries or if you take investment grade um corporates we had a bad year last year uh, we've had a slightly negative start of this year right um not massively so i mean bonds have outperformed equities msci world has underperformed uh, you know Glo Glo barclays global aggregate which is not a great <laughs> you know not very comforting because both have negative returns um but um i actually think with you know u.s treasuries um don't even know exactly where they are at the moment hovering at two percent 10 years right um if uh, you know i don't exactly know what the investment grade spread is but let's say if you get if you get something like two and a half to three percent on on u.s corporates i think that is um basically a situation where you shouldn't underweight those anymore too much and you should kind of be moving towards sort of more or less a neutral allocation with of course very low return expectations still right probably marginally positive in real terms over the longer term but still i would put it this way bonds us us corporate high quality corporate bonds have started to again have a bit of a uh bit of ability to hedge against major equity shocks right for a while that didn't work right you just had uh, both because both you know interest rates were just far too low so buying bonds didn't make sense i think now you know i think what could sort of one doesn't have to be massively underweight bonds anymore but i think effectively cash positions i mean overall probably one has to hold a fair amount of cash at the moment that's just you know something you can't avoid because you're not sure where these interest rates will go you can't kind of buy bonds with full conviction right so my my i mean my personal asset allocation is very heavy in cash uh, at the moment still because there's so much uncertainty on there out there um uh, which uh, uncertainty both respect to bonds but of course probably more so with respect to equities simply because of the because of the political environment and because we don't know whether the fed will overreact right so you know overall i think the i mean that's maybe because i'm personally quite cautious right my overall allocation is still quite cautious with you know sort of I don't know, my, me personally, but that's of course probably too cautious having whatever, 20% cash, right? Um, and, uh, you know, and the rest in uh, uh, whatever, you know, 30 equities, 20 corporate bonds, uh, and then of course a fairly high allocation to hedge funds. Uh, because my guess is that hedge funds, um, you know, if you have a good diversified portfolio of hedge funds, uh, they, you know, they will hopefully be able to generate marginally positive real returns over the rest of the year. So it's a very cautious allocation because of all these uncertainties. 
But I think one of one thing that I have done lately is that I actually have started buying back a bit of bonds, you know, sort of Barclays Global Aggregate Index Fund, uh, knowing that you know I could have negative, slightly negative returns still, but not not worrying that it's going to be a disaster, and knowing that if equities do turn down a lot, they will you know they will perform probably reasonably well, better than in the last 18 months. I, that's a pretty cautious asset allocation because if I, as, as we all know, and sitting on 20% cash in Swiss francs, where you are, is yes. actually taking a negative nominal yield uh, on, on the cash. And that's not a, that's not a simple simple thing for a lot of people to digest right um, no of course and i told you i'm very very cautious but of course don't forget <laughs> don't forget the swiss franc you should also think of the swiss franc not just it's you know in in local terms but you should think of it as a global currency in a global you should think of it as a glo- you know as a safe haven currency so um, it is indeed i i know. think when i look at literature of uh you know what's the sort of the best store of value historically, right? Because these debates always keep come up because, you know, some people argue over cryptocurrencies and all of that. But the reality is that if you want a store of value, it is a currency that maintains uh, the, the, the lowest inflation over long periods of time. And there's yeah. only one currency that wins this game, and that's the Swiss franc. It, it yes. actually yes. lowest inflation with the lowest variance over decades. Yes, um, yes. And, and and a better track record than 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 all. And I've maybe you know gold, one thing I haven't mentioned is gold, which I you know do not think has great has the great ability <laughs> to save you know to to maintain value. Yeah. Uh, on on this one, I I, I can only agree, Oliver. I can only agree <laughs> with you on gold. But uh, but I also I I you know I I must say that that when it comes to to equities. You know, obviously, we're seeing a lot of volatility, but in a scenario where inflation remains somewhat elevated, and here I, I would say my my baseline is that that inflation will come down, but be somewhere between three and three and a half, not two to two and a half. And in that kind of environment, uh, uh, you know, equities where earnings can grow in line with inflation will offer better prospects, right? And yes. we're beginning to see some indications of that where, you know, in the most recent earnings season, companies that are able to raise prices have been rewarded by the market. Yeah, no, no, uh, that's, and, that's of and, course right. I mean, high inflation is of course very bad for equities, right? Interestingly, I mean, they're not a good store value in high inflation environments, in a very moderate inflation environment, that's fine. So, I mean, my sense is also probably that uh, once, I mean, you know, it's obviously always bad to wait for data before you position yourself, right? But my, my guess would be that once inflation actually peaks and people know that it's not going to stay at five, six, you know, seven, uh, but will come down at that point. I think it's going to be then. You know, I, I'm I'm pretty sure that that you're right. That at that point, one should definitely, or maybe just before, <laughs> one should definitely increase on secondary allocation. Yes, I agree. Well, Oliver, thank you very much for this uh, fantastic discussions. It's uh, always a real real treat to to hear your uh, to hear your thoughts. Thanks a lot for having me. Hope it hasn't been too too confusing. It just reflects my own confusion.
This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions. Clients of Parkview may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.